Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn, please, to 2 Kings, <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 22, and we're going to read a little bit of 23. For those of you uh, joining us today, welcome again uh, in the Lord, and we have been studying through the book of Kings, and we are doing something of a little uh, sub-series here on the King uh, Josiah. I want you to fall in love with Josiah. I want Josiah to become your hero, boys and girls. I want you to uh, appreciate Josiah. He is one of the good guys, one of the good kings, and he was used greatly of the Lord in a very historically difficult time period. And uh, I'll say more about that. Um, So let's pray together. And then we're going to read, I'm going to read some of the texts that we read last week, but I'm also going to spill over into the next chapter uh, today as well. We're going to probably uh, look f- more at Josiah in at least one more week, if not two. So let's pray together. Lord, we want to see the greater Josiah as we look at this Josiah. We want Jesus Christ, our King, to be large in our sight, by faith. We want to know you, Lord Jesus. We want to be known by you. We want to be humble before you. We want to uh, love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we want to be obedient uh, from the heart and from the will. We want to do what's pleasing in your sight, Lord. It is our desire that when we die, We will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit today to instruct us from King Josiah how to be a good and faithful servant for Jesus' sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you will, look at chapter 22. We're going to start there. Chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying... Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house. To the carpenters and the builders and the masons, for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back the words of the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and they have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. 
Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And then if you will then please skip over to chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. Amen. I want to uh, rename this, uh, uh, if I could, uh, from what we said in the bulletin, and that's my fault. It's not the producer of the bulletin's fault. I am changing this to why King Josiah matters to the 21st century church, culture, and world. Why King Josiah matters to the 21st century church, culture, and the world. I want to give you four main headings, three of which I want to uh, go over today. And number four, we're going to, I hope, maybe make a sermon in of itself. It will be at least half a sermon, but maybe an entire sermon, God willing, next Sunday. Three things I want us to see from, I, uh, from the study of Josiah that will help us to understand the relevance of studying this history for us as Christians today, as a church, as a culture, and even for the world. I want you, as I said um, earlier, I want you to know King Josiah. I want you to study him. I want you to think on him. I want you to um, appreciate him and make him a hero. Make him one of uh, your favorites. In, in the Bible here. And there are three things that I'm going to show you from today. Number one is this, that Josiah wars against idolatry. Josiah wars against idolatry. That's number one. Number two, Josiah loves the temple. Josiah loves the temple of the Lord. And the temple of the Lord, which we're going to see, also points us to Jesus Christ. And therefore, his love for the temple was but an embryonic love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, Josiah becomes a man of the book. Josiah becomes a man of the book. And then number four, God willing, next week, Josiah renews the covenant and makes further reformations in the church and in the state. Josiah renews the covenant and makes further reformations in the church and the state. Now, uh, if, if, we, if somebody in this church were to create a TikTok account 
and went out with their phone and with a microphone or something and did a man-on-the-street interview and asked people, are you a Christian? We'd probably get a lot of people to say yes. And then if we followed up that question by asking him, can you tell us something about King Josiah in the Old Testament? We probably would get a little bit of silence immediately after that question, are you a Christian? That is to our shame. <laughs> that is to our shame. Because this is a man that we need to be studying. I can't prove it, but I bet that Jesus' human nature was greatly influenced by King Josiah, particularly when it came to the cleansing of the temple. I can imagine with not much difficulty that Jesus Christ in his human nature studying the book of Kings as a teenager, as a boy, studying the book of Chronicles and reading about King Josiah and the Spirit of God revealing to him as he did that Bible study that one day he too was going to be a great man of God who would cleanse the temple of the Lord. That just as Josiah loved the temple and cleansed the temple, Jesus Christ would do even greater works. And just as Josiah was a faithful and godly king, Jesus Christ was one day going to be even a greater king in the sight of his heavenly father here. And so Josiah is worthy of our time. If we are going to have a Presbyterian-led reformation, which we so desperately need again, as we are celebrating 100 years this year of the publication of Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, which essentially said that there are two competing religions in our country, both going under the name of Christian or of Christianity. And they are two diametrically opposed religions. One is the religion that denies the miracles of Christ denies the, the miracles of the, uh, uh, that Jesus did, denies the resurrection of Christ, denies the deity of Christ, and yet they claim to be Christian. And then you have true biblical Christianity here. We are in need of a, a revival and a reformation because our culture has, for the most part, sided with the mainline churches. And there are a lot more of them than there are of us. And what we need is a revival and a reformation. Now, we should not get discouraged. And Josiah shows us why. Because Josiah lived in a day of great discouragement himself and great apostasy himself. As we saw last week, it's been over 50-some years since King Hezekiah died, the last of the faithful kings. You had Manasseh, who had a reign over 50 years, who did great evil in the sight of the Lord, bringing in all manner of idolatry, all manner of bloodshed. And then you have Ammon with a very short, mercifully short reign. Now, Manasseh, as we've said before, did repent at the end of his life. We thank God for that. We thank God that God showed grace. And it does show that God will show grace to the chief of sinners, that God will show grace to people at the end of their life. You know, this nonsense that if you don't get saved by the time you're a teenager, you're never going to get saved. That's nonsense. The Holy Spirit can, is no harder for the Holy Spirit to save an old man than to save a young man. You can come to faith in Jesus Christ if you're 80 years old today. You can be born again by the Spirit of God. And so even though Manasseh did at the end turn his life back to the Lord, he had done tremendous damage 
And so we are seeing here in Josiah, who is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah, the last of the great faithful kings, doing these things uh, of reformation. And so let's look at these three parts. First of all, I want to show you the war that Josiah had against idolatry. Now, we learned from the historian that Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He was a boy king. No doubt he was under tutors during that that time. But notice there that we are told in the eighth year of his reign that he began to seek the Lord. Now, that means that by the time he was 16 years old, Josiah self-consciously was pursuing Christ. And that's a good point for us to pause on. I think for all of us, teenagers, young people, today is the day that you should be turning to the Lord Jesus Christ yourself if you have never done so. We see here that the Lord uses young people. And we see the value of seeking Jesus Christ when you're young. How many sorrows and how many sins did Josiah avoid in his own life because he began seeking God at a young age? We see this with others, don't we? David sought the Lord. He was the youngest of the brothers, and he sought the Lord while he was out in the field watching the sheep. Daniel was a teenager when he was taken into exile, and we see his commitment to the Lord in not wanting to taint himself with that food that might make him unclean. We see it with Samuel, dedicated as a child at the temple of the Lord. We see it with, our, with uh, Mary, who is the mother of our Lord. Mary, a teenage girl, and yet she finds favor in the sight of God. And so, it, it is it, just as I said, you, you don't have to be too old to be beyond the grace of God. You're never too young to start serving God. And so, whether you're young or old, all of us need to be seeking the Lord. Now, Josiah had an extended reign of 31 years. Now, it was cut short a little at the end by his disobedience. He he veered into another lane that he probably shouldn't have been in in terms of international affairs. We'll talk about that later. But Josiah, notice what the Bible says. Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn to the left or to the right, we are told. And that expression comes to us by way of Deuteronomy, where we are told in the Bible that you shall not turn to the left or to the right. You shall walk in the path of the Lord's commands. That we should. So what did he do? Well, he began to purge the land of idolatry. You know, it's been said by church historians such as Carl Truman and and others, if you were to ask Martin Luther, if Martin Luther was among us today, and you said, Martin... Dr. Martin, could you tell us, please, what was the Reformation chiefly about? And Martin Luther would probably say it was about justification, how a man could be made right with God. And if John Calvin was to be with us, we we could ask John Calvin, Calvin, sir, can you tell us what, what is the Reformation chiefly about? And Calvin would probably say it's chiefly about worship, the worship of God. His view of the Reformation was a little bit broader than that of, of Luther. And if you were to ask John Knox uh, from Scotland, and you were to say, uh, good Mr. Knox, could you tell us, what do you think the Reformation, what was at the heart of the Reformation? Knox would tell you in his Scottish brogue that it was a war against idols. It was a war against idolatry. And Josiah saw the Reformation in the same light as Knox. 
I think that's why Knox loved to preach from these Old Testament passages. He, many historians view Knox, he was like an Old Testament prophet in himself, waging war against the idolatry of Rome that had covered over Scotland as a darkness. And Knox is bringing the light of God's word and seeking to destroy by the power of the word of God all these awful superstitions that had covered over the people with ignorance. Well, Josiah was like Knox in that regard. I don't know that he was like Knox in temperament, but he was like Knox at least in his outlook. Knox and uh, Josiah both, I think, saw that the place that has to, the place that needs to be hit first is the idolatry that is polluting the land. Now you say, but pastor, I thought my Bible said that Manasseh began to put away the idols. And indeed, the Bible does say that. So how do we get to this point where there's all this pollution and idolatry? Well, number one, I don't know that Manasseh got rid of it all. And number two, it may have been rid in some capacity, but it may have been superficially removed. It might not yet have been removed in the people's hearts. Remember, they had been living with that idolatry for over five decades And while it may have been easy to remove it from the land, it might have been much harder to remove it from the hearts of the people. And so all it took were two years of wicked Ammon's reign. And the idolatry is back. As if it had never been touched to begin with. And notice the extent and the diversity of the idolatry. We have the high places. We have the ashram. We have the carved images That stuff made out of wood. We have the molten images made out of metal. We have altars to Baal, we are told. We have high incense altars. Um, So we have totem poles. We have things that are carved. We have things that are molten. And they all were to be broken and ground into powder and scattered over the graves of the idolaters. Now what are we to take from Josiah's war against idolatry? Well, one of the things I want us to take away is this. We see, number one, the tenacity of the sin of idolatry. You know, I think if we, again, were to do our man-on-the-street interview and and we asked, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, I am. And could you tell us the Ten Commandments? Not many probably could tell us. But if they could tell you some, they probably would remember the latter commandments, wouldn't they? Murder, adultery, stealing, and lying. But God doesn't begin there with the sins against our neighbor. Where does God begin, boys and girls? God begins with the sins that we commit against him. God begins with idolatry in the first commandment and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. The second commandment, thou shall not make unto thyself any graven image. Who you worship, commandment number one. How you worship, commandment number two. In what manner you worship. You shall worship the Lord God with reverence. You shall not take the name of God in vain. You do dare dare not call upon the name of the Lord in public worship and not give him reverence in that worship. Calling upon the name of God is to call upon God himself because God identifies with his name. His name is to be hallowed. His name is to be holy. His name is to be precious in the sight of God's people. And yet most Christians probably would not begin there. But that is where Josiah begins. And it's to our shame and to Josiah's credit. We need to learn 
today in the church and outside the church how to fear the name of God. We need to take a lesson from Josiah. There is a lot of fallen human perversity within man, even redeemed men, people who have been already purchased by the blood of Christ. We have a lot of sanctification to go in this area. Even as Christians and as churches, we are still prone to idolatry. John Calvin says that we are a factory of idols. We produce idols like Kia producing cars down the street. We are pumping out idols out of our wicked heart. The idolatry mentioned in in these chapters was not the idolatry merely among the heathen, but this was among the church. This was among the people of God. The, the, The Old Testament Israel was the one place on planet earth where idolatry was not supposed to dwell. They were supposed to be a a light unto the nations. All the other nations of the world were covered in superstition and darkness and idolatry. But true religion was supposed to be in Israel. And yet, what do we find in our churches today? We create idols. Now, maybe they're not as crass as the idols of Josiah's day. Maybe there are not idols of carved images or molten images. Now, sometimes they are. But believe me, idolatry is going on in many places that call themselves a church. When they preach a God that has no wrath, that's an idol God. That's not the living God, boys and girls. A God that has no wrath is not the true and living God. God, his wrath is based upon his justice. God hates justice. He loves holiness. He loves beauty. He loves light. He loves righteousness. A God that is okay with sins, even perverse sins, is not the living God. A God that does not require evangelism is not the living God. A God that is okay with fornication is not the living God. A God that is okay with homosexuality and pornography is not the living God. This is an entirely different God. It is a completely different God. It is a different deity. It is an idol. This is what Machen was saying long ago, 100 years ago. Now, there may be superficial similarities But Romans chapter 1 is proof. Men worship idols, Paul says. They turn from the living God and serve these idols, created things, things with uh, four feet, animals and such in Paul's day. And Paul says it's a sign of God's wrath against them, and it is today true as well, isn't it? It is a sign of God's wrath upon an individual, upon a church, upon a culture, upon a town like LaGrange, upon the state of Georgia, when men worship idols. When God gives men, when God gives men over to idolatry, it is a form of God's wrath. And as they engage in idolatry, then God brings further justice upon them for the idolatry. You see, it's one thing to be turned over to the worship of idols, and then 
God then turns them over to other sins because of their idolatry. That's what Romans 1 says. And so because they worship idols, because they reject the true and living God, and they say, no, I want a church that is made in my own image. I want a God that's made in my own image. I want a Jesus that is made in my own image. A Jesus who will go with the flow of the culture. That's the kind of Jesus I want. That Jesus is not the living, resurrected Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father. That is an idol. That is an idol. It is a false god, and it needs to be cleansed. As surely as Josiah chopped those idols down, burned them up, and scattered their ashes in the river Kidron, so we need to do as well today. But friends, we don't go out with axes and baseball bats and go about iconoclastically smashing things. But rather, what does the Bible say that we are to do? We are tearing down all these things that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God through the power of God's Spirit, through the Word that God has inspired. We take every thought captive and make it obedient unto Christ. We tear down the ashram. We melt down the molten images by preaching the word of God. Now, we live in a day where there is idolatry. It may be more sophisticated than it was in Josiah's day. But nevertheless, any strange doctrine, aberrant idea, distortion of the Bible is coming to us as an idol. Remember what Paul says, Satan poses as an angel of light. And so Satan probably knows that in our present Western culture, he's not going to make inroads by trying to persuade the church to fall down before a totem pole again. And so he says, okay, men will no longer bow before carved images, maybe, but maybe I can get them to bow before invisible idols. I'll create new gods. And I'll give some of these idols some of the similar attributes to the living God, but I'll, I'll have other attributes that are foreign to him. I'll make these deities somewhat benevolent. I'll, I'll call, say that they are gods or idols of love and compassion, but it'll be a distorted sense of love so that men can continue in their sin without having to repent and that there will be no need for a blood atonement. And that's the kind of idolatry. These gods that will allow church members to sleep with another man's wife, to be greedy and selfish, and still remain within good standing, cheats and liars, and yet they never have to leave their pew. The idols that Satan creates do not demand a repentance that God re demands here. Now, they may make you repent, but it may be repenting of other things. Maybe It may be that you're following the traditions of men. You know, those who make men, you know, Paul warns, Timothy doesn't, he says, you know, be on the lookout for men who, you know, make these rules like you can't marry or forbid certain foods to be eaten. Does that sound familiar to any of us? can't eat meat on Friday. Your, your ministers, your priests can't marry. Satan knows how to bait the hook so that men will bow down and, and worship another god or a goddess. 
turning Mary into a goddess, turning Mary into a mediator between yourself and Jesus, as though Jesus could not be reached by your prayers. You need to go to Jesus's mother. There is as much idolatry among us today in the world as there was in Josiah's day. Man has not changed except by those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit. Now the gods may have changed shapes and forms and names, but the, the, but the idolatry itself has not changed. Now Josiah is thorough in his destruction of idolatry. Everything that is evil and rivals the true worship of God, he tears down. He is thorough in the scope of his reformation, and he is thorough in the extent of it. He destroys the idolatry completely, so completely that the people will not be tempted to stumble in sin. He, he burns this stuff. He melts it down and he scatters the ashes as though to say, he doesn't even put up one piece in the museum for memory's sake. He gets rid of it all. It's thorough. And the apostle Paul says that we are to do likewise. Listen here to uh, the great, Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge, the 19th century Princeton systematic theologian, said, when the gospel was first proclaimed, it found itself in conflict with all the forms of religion and philosophy then prevailing among men. To the wise of this world, says Hodge, to the wise of this world, the gospel appeared as foolishness. That is, the world thought very little of Christianity. You remember how Paul goes and preaches at the Areopagus? You remember that? And everybody wanted to hear what he had to say because they were always interested in hearing new things. It's like a TED Talk, right? The Areopagus was the TED Talk of the day. Let's hear something new. What's this guy got? He's coming and bringing some strange new deity and Paul begins to tell them about the true and the living God and how God's made everything. But notice what Luke tells us. He says, when the moment Paul gets to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people began to guffaw. Oh, oh, come on. Why? Because they said it's foolish. This is foolishness. You're telling me I go to heaven because some Palestinian Jew hung on a piece of wood and God raised him from the dead? Oh, get out of here, Paul. Quit wasting our time. Who's the next speaker? It was foolishness, says Charles Hodge. It was foolishness to to men. But listen to what Hodge says. He says, it was, however, the wisdom and power of God. The conflict then begun, continued ever since, and is now as, listen to this, as deadly as any former period. Hodge is saying, Idolatry is as much a problem in contemporary living as it was in any previous age. Men, listen to this now. Now, this is a guy who wrote in the 19th century. That's the 1800s. 1800s, boys and girls. See if this doesn't sound like things that we've been going through today. Hodge diagnosing the idolatry out there in the world. He says, Men of, listen to this, men of science. Anybody heard Trust the Science lately? (laughs) Men, he wrote this 150 plus years ago. Men of science and philosophers are as confident in their conclusions. Global warming, anybody? You know, I had a guy emphatically tell me, I'm out in California doing a hike. 
guy tells me the polar ice caps are going to be gone in 50 years, he said. I thought to myself, I thought that was supposed to happen 10 years ago, you know. <laughs> what was so confident back in the, in the 70s, well, they're still as confident, but now it's just been pushed out. So confident in their conclusions and as much disposed to exalt themselves and their opinions against the knowledge of God as ever. He says there is no doubt as to the issue of this contest. It is a contest between God and man in which, of course, God must prevail. The instructive lesson, now listen to this, the instructive lesson which the apostle designs here to inculcate is that this warfare must not be conducted on the part of the advocates of the gospel with carnal weapons. We don't fight like they do. They must rely on their own resources and attempt to overcome their enemies by argument. We do what? We are in the demolition business, and we rely on the Spirit of God. Now let me make a few applications as based on Josiah's war against idolatry. Number one, we must first of all pray for the Spirit's power and anointing to be in the church. Now don't raise your hand, but how many of you got on your knees this morning and said, God, please send the Holy Spirit to our worship service this morning. How many of you, and, and I'm guilty of this too, time and time again, I, I go on autopilot and I get here just like many of you probably. How many of you pleaded for God to send the Holy Spirit to be here? And how many of you just assumed on God Hodge was saying here, we have to fight this battle in spiritual ways. It is a spiritual battle. Remember how Daniel began praying with fasting? And, and the angel of the Lord finally comes to Daniel. And he said, man, your prayer was answered the moment you began to pray. But what? I was resisted. There was spiritual war going on. And I'm only now coming to you because there was this resistance. And it's a weird and strange, wonderful passage. But it tells us there's stuff going on that we don't know about, that we don't see. We have to live and pray in dependence upon the Spirit's ministry, not on our gifts, not on the fact that we're Orthodox and therefore God will surely bless. I don't know how many times I've listened to Orthodox preachers who are dead in their preaching. They are as boring as all get out. They're orthodox, but there's no life. There's no passion. There's no glory to their preaching. We're supposed to be preaching as dying men unto dying people. We are dealing with eternal matters here. Christ is in heaven, but he has sent the Holy Spirit. And the church... Through prayer, our job is to bring down the blessings and the power of God through the Spirit's work in and through the Word. And yet, most of this room is going to be empty next Wednesday. And it's going to be down to the same 20% of this congregation pleading for God to bring the blessings. 
We have to rely on the Holy Spirit in our work, in our Christian lives. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, lean not upon your own understanding. Don't take up this warfare against idolatry simply by your own understanding, but acknowledge God in all your ways. It may seem foolish to give yourself to prayer in your room by yourself night after night. But don't lean on your own understanding. I know the world thinks you're wasting your time. The world thinks it it is ridiculous other than any kind of comfort that it might bring you. Friends, it also means we're not to be ashamed of the gospel in our community with our neighbors. It's the power of God, says Paul, unto salvation to everyone who believes. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can wreck idolatry. The most fundamental problem we have is not an economic problem. It's not a political problem. It's not a social problem. It's a spiritual problem. The most fundamental problem any culture has, any community has, any person has, always will be a spiritual problem first and foremost. Only God and the Holy Spirit can wreck the idol, bring down the idol. King Jesus is the greater Josiah, And he is longing and willing to do so. He is not a reluctant king who wants to, I guess I'll reform my church. He's the greater Josiah. Listen, he has more love for you. He he has more love for his church than we have for his church. He loves his church. He gave his life for this church. He's going to see to it that this church is sanctified and glorified. He's going to see to it that his death and resurrection are not in vain. He is going to see to it that he builds his church because he's the greater Josiah. He's the greater king. Well, we see also that Josiah not only warred against idolatry, but he also, he loved the temple, secondly. And yes, I realize we aren't getting close to being done here. Josiah loved the temple. Secondly, Josiah loved the temple. The first thing he did was to begin to repair the temple. The building had been falling into disrepair for decades And so Josiah says, the first thing I want to do is I want the monies collected and I want them to be brought and given to those who will make the repairs. So that idolatry needs to be purged. The idols must get cleansed out of the temple. But there needs to be this rebuilding here. Now, why is this so significant? And why is Josiah's love for the temple So important because, as you've heard me say many times, even through our series in the book of Kings, that the temple is a picture of Jesus Christ. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking of his body. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying his death and resurrection is the superseding of the temple. 
When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, the temple is so important because it points us to Jesus Christ and the work of Christ. The temple, for example, had the Holy of Holies. What was the Holy of Holies? It was the inner room where God's special presence dwelt. But now in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, we have God dwelling with man in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. God is no longer in a a gold-covered room with a veil in front of it. But now God comes veiled in human flesh. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The temple had sacrifices. And what does Paul say of Jesus' death on the cross? He says that Christ is our Passover. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Christ is the sacrifice. The temple had a veil. What does Mark 15, verse 37 and 38 say? Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last on the cross, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And notice he even says it was torn from the top to the bottom to show that it wasn't torn by men, but by God himself. The, the temple had a veil, and Christ comes, and he shows that the old things are passing away. And behold, he is the temple. He is the corner, chief cornerstone. In the temple, you had the golden lampstand. And what does John chapter 8, verse 12 say? Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. We don't need the lampstand anymore in the holy place. Jesus is the light. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The temple had the large, what they call the sea. It was a big, large basin where they did all the ceremonial washing. And yet, what does Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and following say? That Jesus Christ has made us a kingdom of priests who has washed us in his blood, just as the priest would wash in the basin at the temple. Jesus Christ washes us, we who are priests for Christ. And so Josiah restoring the old covenant image and type of Christ at the temple, he was doing an important work because Jesus he was showing us is so central and prominent to the life of the church, just as the temple was in his day. It was pointing us to the centrality of Jesus Christ for us today. You know, um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's, Paul, what is Paul saying? Central to his life is this temple is this person of Jesus Christ. Can you today say that? Boys and girls, young people, can you say to live is Christ today? Can you, aged members, say to live is Christ? Do you think about Jesus Christ every day? Does Jesus Christ define your existence? Does Jesus Christ define your life? Was Jesus Christ the the central focus of this Lord's Day for you? Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is God of God and yet come in human flesh. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And Jesus Christ offers us today this great promise. Come unto me. 
and I will in no way cast you out. Come unto me, ye who are weary, ye who are heavy laden, ye who are broken, ye who are tired of sin, you who are tired of the effects of sin in your life, come unto me. The king says, come unto me and I'll give you life. I'll give you meaning. I'll give you significance. I'll show you what you were intended to be all along. Because I am the greater temple. I am the king of that temple. I am the sacrifice of that temple. I am the resurrection. I am the life. 